Kane Warwick is the founder of Synthetics and a total crypto OG. Synthetics is a new financial primitive enabling the creation of synthetic assets, offering unique derivatives and exposure to real world assets on the blockchain. Today, we dive into what's next for Synthetics with the latest V3 launch, what will cause the next big leg up in DeFi, what we're calling DeFi Summer 2, the differentiation between different perps that exist in crypto, how Synthetics made the decision to launch on a layer two so quickly and burn all bridges behind them. And it gets pretty spicy with some tea on FTX and Three Arrows Capital. Before we dive into this, Kane is going to tell us what he's been up to since we last spoke to him about what it takes to scale Ethereum last year. I think, you know, the last like three or four months um, for me has been like a bit of a break um, from the ecosystem. Um, you know, I'd had uh, many years of kind of continued obsessive, uh, you know, engagement in, in the community. Um, and I, I kind of took a step back from synthetics governance um, and, you know, look to be like, perfectly frank and, and transparent, like I just wanted to kind of take a look at myself and, you know, it had been a long time since I'd actually, you know, thought about what I was doing, like what, you know, what I was trying to get out of things. And it's been really helpful. Um, it's been really a helpful process for me to go through. So, you know, the last like month or so has been kind of getting back into things and starting to kind of get a sense of where, where things are at. Amazing. Yeah. I think that time off is super important in a space that's 24 seven and, and sucks all of your attention. So it's great. You were able to, to take a little break and, and then emerge. And we're super excited that you're on the defiant with that emergence. Um, and you definitely qualify as a crypto OG. So tell us a little bit about your history. You're most known for synthetics, I think, as many listeners know. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, people kind of are aware that I ran a payment gateway um, back in like 2014. Um, we started it uh, as like a way to allow people to convert fiat into like digital, you know, it wasn't even, it wasn't aimed at crypto necessarily, but it became like a really um, kind of compelling use case, this like fiat into, um, into crypto use case. Um, and so, you know, that, that business still runs, it's called blue shift. Um, you know, we've got like 2000 locations around Australia where people can take fiat and convert it, you know, into, uh, into crypto as well as other things, right? Like there's a bunch of stuff that it does. That's how I got into the space. Um, I've known people like Asher 10, um, from CoinJar um, because I was in uh, online retail. And so I was always interested in the payment space. And, you know, so Bitcoin to me was like this interesting thing of like, how do we like solve payments online, right? Obviously, we've moved, you know, multiple <laughs> narratives away from, you know, uh, from digital currency and, and payments, you know, in the Bitcoin land. But, um, you know, I do think that uh, that was kind of, you know, what got me interested in space in, in the first place. Like there were genuine problems in online commerce that were like unsolved, you know, and, and even like the stripes of the world and PayPal's and stuff like weren't really addressing those problems. So, um, you know, crypto for me, that was, that was kind of the entry point. Amazing. Yeah. I think even Satoshi got it wrong, right? Satoshi thought it was going to be for payments and it turned out to be more for store of value, but you know, we're on the cusp of lightning and hopefully we'll make development developments there. One um, day. One day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Visa yeah. does a pretty good job though. So it's not the, the easiest <laughs> to compete with. Amazing. Well, you know, we were just providing infrastructure for it. You were fully in it. DeFi summer. Let's talk about it. You know, what was that like leading up to that 2021 boom? So I was talking to someone um, 
about this uh maybe like a week or so ago um you know i've been i've been kind of reading out to people and having some conversations over the last like, month and um i was trying to explain it because they weren't in the space when when this is going on and i was like there were like people don't realize like they think DeFi summer was this like huge thing there were like 50 people it was like not many people like it was just like you know literally like a bunch of telegram groups and someone would wake you up in the morning and be like hey there's a new like yield farm and like the same people who are building the yield farms who are doing the thing it was all the same group of people like it was not like there were like millions of people doing this and i do think that that um that kind of uh you know insanity that happened in in defi summer um kind of laid the groundwork then for like this awareness of DeFi, like as a, a movement, you know, but that, that kind of uh, initial um, sort of very insular, um, you know, PVP game kind of style stuff that we were doing in DeFi summer, uh, you know, was, was what proved that it could actually do things like, you know, we had smart contracts that were doing things, money was being made, money was being lost, you know, it was, it was a bit weird um, and self-contained, but it was a thing that was functional. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, in the middle of that boom, it definitely felt like we were kind of on the cusp of this end user adoption. And it seems like somewhere along the way that adoption didn't really happen. Do you kind of feel similarly? I do. You know, I think in, in the midst of DeFi summer, transactions got expensive. Right. You know, and we were all like, oh, like this is, we, you know, it costs more than a dollar to like transfer ETH. Right. Like, and, you know, I think there was like a little bit of concern about that. Like, you know, people would kind of talk about it. Like, oh, and, you know, synthetics in particular, um, the, the contracts were very complex back then. And the way that you deployed, you know, complex smart contracts on Ethereum, um, you know, was pretty different back then, right? And so we always had very high transaction costs. Again, you're talking, you know, $3 versus a dollar, but like, you know, back then that was meaningful money for, you know, a lot of people in the space. And so people would complain. They're like, I can't believe I'm paying $8 to like claim this week. And so it was just always on our mind that like that was a thing that we needed to address. Um, and so, you know, when DeFi Summer uh, really kicked off um, and then, you know, probably like the March 2020 crash was when it became really obvious like the network couldn't handle the amount of activity that was on it. You know, there were too many interconnected systems, too many, you know, uh, sort of, um, I guess, uh, you know, arbitrage like transactions where, you know, you've got money over here, money over here, and you need to kind of, you know, keep them in sync. When you have, you know, two pots of money, it's fine. When you have a thousand, you know, the, the kind of networking between those things that all had to run through Ethereum just was impossible for it to handle. And so, you know, we saw transaction costs like blow up, you know, it was like, you know, three, four hundred way to, to get a transaction on chain. You know, this is when ETH was, you know, not very expensive either, right? Like it became much worse later. So I do think that that, that period in DeFi summer where, um, you know, we saw transactions were becoming expensive was like the early thing and people kind of had an inkling this was a problem but then when mass adoption happens you just we didn't have the scale we couldn't support it it was impossible to support you know a million users on ethereum uh, it was too expensive and i assume that that is what led you to start thinking about scaling you were one of the first applications to migrate to a layer two can you talk a little bit about that yeah, you know, again, this was like, this is a, a ongoing conversation in uh, the synthetics community from, you know, early 2019, right? Where people were like, 
Synthetics is too expensive to use, right? Like we were the original, like Ethereum is too expensive to use. It was like synthetics is too expensive to use. This is a joke. Why are you guys, you know, why these transactions uh, cost so high? And, you know, we'd be like, oh, complexity. And you kind of hand wave it and like we're working on stuff. But it really meant that like when, um, you know, the the kind of uh, and and look, let's be honest, right? Like I, you know, I sat in, in a room in, you know, 2017 and 2018 and listened to Vitalik, like promise us that, you know, like scaling was coming, you know, E2 was almost here. It was good. And so we were like, yeah, this is someone else's problem. Like it'll be solved, right? We don't need to worry about this too much. Um, and so we would kind of hand wave it, right? A little bit. And then we got to a point where we were like, okay, we can't hand wave this anymore. Like this is actually bad. Like this is, in, this is impacting even if it wasn't mass adoption, it was impacting our adoption within the nascent DeFi community because people would just write off synthetics and be like, oh, it's too expensive to use it. I don't care whatever. Right. And any kind of friction like that was really problematic. And so we were like, okay, guys, we get it. Vitalik's not going to do this for us this year. Like, let's go and like, you know, and so once things like, you know, optimism um, and the Unipig demo and, and stuff popped up, Synthetics was ready to jump on that. And we did. And we just jumped straight on and we're like, hey, guys, we've got a big problem. We need your help. And that was the initial conversations with, you know, Jing and Carl and Kevin and those guys. Amazing. And then is there anything that you wish you had done differently around that? Uh, and maybe speaking in the sense of someone who's thinking about it today, thinking about migrating to a layer two. I Look, we... We made, uh, I guess, we made a decision to lean into that and, and kind of burn the boats, right? In the same way that we did on Ethereum, right? We we're like, let's just, like, let's not, you know, keep optionality open. Let's not, you know, try and hedge our bets. Let's just make a decision, go all in, um, have a seat at the table in terms of what this network will look like. Um, you know, it, it, like speaking of optimism, right? Um, and, that's not the right decision for everyone, obviously. Like someone has to take the pain of that. But, you know, the value that we got from being able to uh, be connected to that early work that was going on in Optimism and, and to, you know, have this symbiotic relationship, this kind of, you know, um, information sharing um, as like a complex smart contract suite, sharing that information of what that was like to run that with the people who are building this new network that was going to have to support those kinds of complex smart contracts was invaluable to the space. And, and we just sort of said like, this is just going to be part of what happens, right? Someone has to do this. Someone has to, to kind of take the, um, you know, um, uh, put that effort in. And, and so we did it. Um, today, I think, you know, people are in a situation where there are multiple, um, you know, scaling solutions out there. There's Arbitrum, there's Optimism, you know, the Starkware, the Starknet, like there, there are multiple things. But I think the key thing for me is they're all within the Ethereum ecosystem. So regardless of which one, you know, is your preferred flavor, um, we now have scaling within Ethereum, which was really all that I wanted, you know, so. Amazing. And then where do you think we're headed with DeFi? Obviously, we do have some product market fit, but what do you think will give DeFi that next leg up? So I think where we sort of sit now, right, is maybe in uh, a position where it's like, the, the kind of presage to DeFi Summer 2, right? Like people joked in 2020 about like DeFi Summer 2 never happened, right? Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why that didn't happen. Um, but people are like, well, DeFi Summer happened. Like obviously there's going to have to be a DeFi Summer 2. And, you know, there was DeFi 2 for a while. Let's not forget about that, right? That meme. Um, and DeFi 2 was just like taking 
the most, you know, kind of uh, adversarial aspects of DeFi and just like isolating them into this like crazy like PVP game, right? Which was fun and cool and interesting, but you know, I don't know that it was like sustainable, right? And so we kind of learned that lesson. But the this idea that there will be like a DeFi summer to you know has been floating around since 2019, right? The original DeFi summer, and so I do think that now four years later, we are we are actually in a position where that might happen. And one of the um, the things that I think, um, you know, I've been reflecting on is that DeFi as a whole, we, right, you know, the collective DeFi kind of fucked it up, right? Like we, we didn't quite get there. And, you know, there's people who are not in DeFi, but in the Ethereum community that <clears throat> I think are also somewhat... You know, we have to take a little bit of responsibility for this, right? Um, you know, infrastructure providers and you know, people working on scaling. We just didn't quite get there, right? And so what happened was people turned up before the party was ready, right? You know, we hadn't we hadn't put out all, you know, we we were just not ready for it. And so the problem with that was that we weren't able to provide solutions for people in a safe, transparent non-custodial decentralized way right and you know people being people they want what they want and they went to centralized solutions right you know this idea of um you know an, another dominant centralized exchange popping up in 2019 we were all like no like there's you know there's binance but like no one's ever going to turn up and like be able to take on binance like we're going to be the ones we'll be the next ones who will be there and we just weren't ready we, we didn't get there. And then a whole bunch of other stuff happened, the Altel 1 thesis. And, you know, there were a whole bunch of pop-dependent weird things that happened because we weren't ready for this influx of users. Um, and the end result is that we let a bunch of criminals steal everyone's money. And that's on us, right? Like, you know, like we, we just, you know, we really fucked that up, right? And I do think that we're in a position now with scaling, with the infrastructure, with all the things that we have, where we will, by the time people turn up this cycle, we'll be ready to offer a, a range of non-custodial solutions to the things that people want to do. They want to be able to trade. They want to be able to, you know, uh, transact with one another. They want to be able to play games. They want to be able to do all this stuff. And I think we will be ready this time. I hope we'll be ready. So when DeFi Summer happens this time, DeFi Summer 2, the real DeFi Summer 2, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that it is actually more like mass adoption than it was last time around where it was just, you know, 50 people on a Telegram channel. Totally. Amazing. Yeah. Super excited for that. And it's interesting to think about those kind of components that have come together to get things ready now. Synthetics just released their V2 perpetual futures trading contracts with the lowest fees of any decentralized perps markets available anywhere outside of a centralized exchange. Synthetics perps are available to trade with up to 25x leverage on optimism through two partner dApps, Quenta.io and Decentrex.com. The community intends to launch dozens of unique assets and is developing plans for trading incentives by the end of the month. Are there any pieces that you think are lacking when it comes to the infrastructure or just things needed for that DeFi, DeFi summer too? So I think, you know, the, the thing that attracts people, um, and, and we got some of this right. Like the thing, you know, that attracted people to on-chain transactions was Uniswap, 
right? In, in that kind of last period, right? There were a lot of people who were interacting on Uniswap because it was faster at letting them do the dumb stuff that they wanted to do than anything else, right? Like Uniswap is faster than Binance, faster than FTX, faster than, you know, all these other solutions, right? And so I think the ability to be responsive to user needs, right? Whatever those might be. We don't get to choose what the, what the user wants, right? The user's wants and needs, we have to be able to be responsive to that, right? And the only way you can really be responsive is if you have a genuine competitive marketplace. And we just didn't, right? We didn't have a competitive marketplace of, you know, spot trading. We kind of had Uniswap, right? And then there were a couple of things that popped up that really, you know, couldn't compete with Uniswap, right? And we didn't really have, you know, a competitive landscape of um, perp products. We do now, you know, there's like 10 different perp products, right? And and you can't be a credible marketplace if you've got one, you know, person offering solutions. It's not going to work. So I think this time the key is to have a range of solutions. Um, and within the Ethereum ecosystem, we now have that. In, in whatever, you know, category of trading or activity that users want to do, staking services, all that stuff, like there's multiple solutions. Uh, and I think that just puts in a, in a much better place than, than we were historically. Yeah. And for some of the listeners who might not be as familiar with DeFi, can you break down those categories and the different players in each just to kind of map yeah. it out? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, obviously like talking about, you know, um, letting users give money to criminals, like one of the things that people want to be able to do in a bull market is they want to be able to borrow against their crypto assets. They don't want to sell them. Right. Um, you know, now that can take many forms, right? Like it can be that they want like a passive yield on their, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum, or they want to take out like a leverage loan so they can YOLO, you know, more crypto, right? Like whatever they want to do, that's not our problem. We can't decide what people want to do. We can't stop people from doing weird, crazy shit. They're going to do what they do. We just need to make sure that we have solutions that protect them as much as possible, right? And so one of the areas of infrastructure, I guess, that we did do fairly well with um, in DeFi Summer was in lending. Lending and borrowing. You know, we had Aave, we had Compound, you know, we had some aggregators, we had some, you know, weirder, more weird and wonderful things. Um, but, you know, we had like a, a suite of um, solutions for that problem and, and people were able to use it. Where I think it probably broke down a little bit is we didn't have, um, you know, at that time, um, the capacity to sort of take on assets from like other ecosystems and like other chains and like Bitcoin. And, you know, so people were just like, well, like I've got this app, you know, um, and I can you know go and send my crypto to them and they'll pay me a yield. Right. Um, in order to be able to, to, you know, do a better job. Now you can't compete with fraud, right? Like it's really hard to compete with fraud. If someone's like, Hey, download my app and I'll pay you, you know, 28% interest for the rest of time. And don't ask why. Some people are going to be tricked by that. And, you know, one of the things you can't do in DeFi is give them fake, like it's too transparent. I can't be like, oh, yeah, you get 28% yield if you deposit this into this smart contract, like, you know, maybe through tokens and all kinds of stuff. But like in terms of, um, you know, like in-kind yield, it's just not possible. Like that doesn't exist, right? So there are there are things like that where I guess, um, you know, you can't necessarily compete, but what you can do is create an environment where people understand the risks a little bit better. Um, and if you have really good solutions to these problems, that that just will occur naturally. Um, and so, you know, you've got lending, you've got trading, um, you've got perps and derivatives, um, you know, you've got like yield generating things. Um, 
but you know, like there, there isn't a huge amount of stuff that people want to do. There's only like three or four things they want to do. You just have to have robust solutions for all of them and they need to be easy to access. That totally makes sense. So then I, I guess I have a question because I think one of the things that Sam and FTX were trying to do, aside from just siphoning off all the money that they could, was <laughs> put uh, to put equities on the blockchain, right? And he wanted to get things regulated so that we could see that future. What do you think about that? Is that something that you think there's an appetite for? Is that a future that's even possible given the regulatory stranglehold Wall Street has on on the equities market? So, you know, Synthetics tried this, right? Synthetics and a few others, um, you know, not naming any names, Tara. Uh, but, you know, there were, there were a few people out there who had this idea, right? And again, like, you know, there's, there's a lot of startup literature that is very dismissive of users. Users are idiots. They don't know what they want, right? You know, Steve Jobs was like the poster, you know, boy for this, right? Like, forget about what you, like, if you let users design a phone, you know, and have like antennas and shit and like 85 cameras, like users don't know what they want, right? You got to do what you think is right and then let, you know, the users decide if they want that thing, right? You go out and optimize for something, right? And so I think that like, this um, this idea that users have, right? And there are DGENs in crypto that still say they want to trade equities, right? And yet you put them on the blockchain and you let them trade them and no one trades them. Now, there's reasons for that and maybe some inefficiencies and liquidity. And, but like there was liquidity, like and people were not doing it. The only reason why people were trading um, on mirror equities was because they were yield farming, right? It was just like, you know, transaction mining to get, you know, tokens in the Terra ecosystem, right? That was, there was no, I, I, you know, I stand by the fact that I say like there was no genuine usage and the same thing is true of synthetics, right? Like people were only doing it because there were a couple of liquidity pools in balancer and a few other places. And so, you know, you can, you can, I, I think I've come to a conclusion now after enough time in the space that um, if you create a market for something, right, um, and no one's trading it, like the, the fact that there was no market before is a really powerful indicator that there is no demand to trade that thing. Right. Um, and so, you know, sometimes you have to go out on a limb and say like, okay, let's try this, right? Let's see. Maybe, you know, there was just some weird structural inefficiency in the market that just couldn't allow this thing to happen. Um, and so you go and you kind of do an experiment, but most of the time those experiments fail. Um, uh, because most of the time the market will solve, uh, you know, something if, if people really want to trade it. And so my, my theory is that like people don't really want to trade equities on the blockchain in the current form that we're talking about. Now, you know, if you like replace the NASDAQ with like a, a you know blockchain-based platform, is that better? Yes, like for sure. I think that's a better solution. And eventually is that Ethereum? You know, yes, maybe. Um, but that requires like NASDAQ to participate. I don't think you can like circumvent that and, and you know, just turn up and be like, oh, we're just going to siphon all the liquidity out of like NASDAQ. It's just not going to happen. Totally. And that kind of goes back to that parallel of visa and payments. You have to almost improve it in such a drastic way. Uh, and maybe that's not the need. So that's very interesting. Uh, you know, we alluded to it, but I want to double click into the DGEN culture, the Wagme culture. You know, how much of an influence were the DGEN traders, including, you know, Celsius, Rero's Capital, Alameda, you know, the list goes on and on. Because in retrospect, to me, it feels like they were all engaging in this big zero-sum game, and we were all kind of onlookers. 
Yeah. I mean, in DeFi summer, it's funny. Um, someone tweeted this at me and I'd forgotten this even happened. Right. But like back in, in DeFi summer, I called out Sam. Um, you know, I was like, dude, like, how are you putting a hundred million dollars into GAM V8? Like what's going on? Like what, like how, like who's taking the, the risk on that? Right. Like, you know, and there was this weird implication that I think everyone kind of bought into. And this is, you know, crypto people turn up, right? They turn up and they turn up with wrapped in this mystique and secrecy. And, you know, I read, I went back and actually read the Madoff book. One, well, I mean, there's a lot of Madoff books, but I read one of the Madoff books, right? Um, because I think that that is the playbook that a lot of these, uh, these people have taken when they come into crypto, right? You can, you can wrap yourself in this mystique and, and secrecy and people, you know, are all like whispering about like, oh, these like genius traders like just turned up and they're making all this money or whatever. And it just has, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And it's like exactly what Madoff did. Madoff, you know, took over 20 years, right? Not over like 20 minutes, but you know, like we do in crypto, but like over 20 years, Madoff did this, right? Um, and people were like, oh, I don't want to like talk badly about this, you know, amazing guy who's, you know, got all this power, whatever. So like Sam turned up and he was, you know, Alameda, like you had heard rumors about these like amazing traders of doing all these crazy strategies and making so much money or whatever. Like, I'm sure that there were really obvious arbitrage opportunities early on, you know, through 2018, 2019 or whatever. And I'm sure they made some money on that. But when you actually add up the amount of money that they could have made from those things, um, it's probably in the tens of millions of dollars of profit. Like that's my ballpark, right? Um, and three hours is very similar, right? Three hours turned up and, you know, people are like, they've got 10 billion under management. And you're like, that's not possible. Like you can't be a prop trade. Like where the fuck did that money come from? And yet we all, including myself, were like, it's crypto, weird things happen. Like YOLO, you know, back to like your whatever thing. But like the obvious answer was the the right one. Right. Where were they getting the money from? They were getting the money from other people and pretending that it was theirs and doing all of this crazy degenerate shit and pretending like they had profits that they actually didn't. And, you know, this is the danger of on-chain transactions, right? Like Alameda was, you know, swinging around hundreds of millions of dollars and people were like, well, there's the money. You know, it's not like someone like Madoff was like, you know, just had a little book that he would write and be like, yep, I did $10 billion of trading today. Like these guys were actually trading huge size on chain and that was convincing, um, you know, and, and I think got people to buy in. So, you know, in DeFi summer, there was a lot of that, but there were also genuine like early ETH people and, and you know, DeFi whales and stuff, you know, that were like playing these games. It was very PVP. Um, but I, I do think that like, it wasn't just, you know, people that were trading other people's money. There were, I think there were, there were actually participants in there who were, who were trading their own money. You know, a lot of money was made and lost. Like there were things that were actually going on. It was genuine activity, whether it was useful market activity is debatable. Um, but it wasn't all, you know, Nexos and, and Celsius of the world. Totally. I actually think I remember that tweet. And, you know, that's not the first time we've had run-ins with this type of person on Twitter. I remember the Three Arrows Capital when they kind of went after you. And I remember I wrote them on my blacklist because like anyone that goes after a founder like that, it's just shameful in my opinion. But I would love to kind of understand from your side, what was the philosophical difference uh, with that that particular run-in? Yeah, I think, you know, 
I've gone back and forth on this a lot, like in my mind, like, was I subconsciously subtweeting them? You know, I really don't like, you know, I said, I said at the time, I was like, I don't think I was sub, I don't think I had like three hours in my mind when I tweeted that. Right. I think they were part of it, but it was bigger than just them. Um, and you know, most, like most of the time when I'm calling someone out on Twitter, it's multi-coin. Like, let's be honest, right? Like if I'm subtweeting someone, it's almost always Kyle, right? Um, and you know, the thing that was interesting to me about that is Kyle and I had had all these debates about all of this stuff and you know, they, they were deep into Solana and they were like doing all this stuff. And you know, there's this kind of opportunistic, um, uh, very, um, you know, sitting on the sideline, looking like taking advantage of opportunities, kind of trader investor mentality that is okay. Like the market allows it. Like it's okay. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to tattoo like the Ethereum logo on, you know, your forearm to, to participate. Right. Like, and, and, you know, I will give Multicoin credit. They, they were, they're still investing when a lot of funds just, you know, stopped. Right. And I remember talking to Kyle about like, you know, buying ETH at like $80 or whatever, you know, we're sitting, or I think we're sitting at like ECC or something or, you know, ETH New York or whatever. And, and you know, he was like, yeah, I'm going to like load up on ETH. Now his reason for loading up on ETH was, you know, very transparently like opportunistic, right? He's like, this thing's undervalued and I don't care about it really. I just want to make money on it. Mine was like, well, I want, you know, ETH because I want, you know, I want the ecosystem to, to kind of win, right? Then three hours turns up, you know, Multicoin has been playing this game for years of just, you know, opportunistically supporting new things and not really like going all in on something and whatever. And three hours is like, hold my beer. Like you think that you like that? And, and they just like double down on that strategy, right? Now, little did we know that they were doing it with other people's money and they were doing all kinds of you know, crazy shit in the background. Um, but it's, it's ultimately um, the responsibility of, of people in the ecosystem to call these things out. And it's really hard in crypto to do that. You know, I tweeted that, you know, these people were saying one thing, right? And they look like they were kind of, you know, standing by their convictions, but the instant that things shifted, they were going to shift. Right. And my thesis was Ethereum will scale. Like at the moment, they're just shitting on Ethereum and saying Ethereum's garbage. Go with, you know, Solana or go with, you know, Avalanche or whatever, you know, the, the latest L1 thing was. And I was really frustrated by that. I was like, fine, competition is good, but you can't just sit here and shit on Ethereum. And then I know in three months time, we're going to get, you know, scaling is going to start to work. And they're going to turn up and be like, Ethereum scaling is amazing, right? And, you know, the fact that it got such a reaction out of Sue, I think, is indicative of, you know, the mirror was like, he didn't like what he saw, right, in the mirror. And, you know, he lost his fucking mind um, and just like, you know, lit himself on fire. Now, you know, obviously, then they blew up um, later and we realized that, you know, a lot of the stuff that was going on. But, you know, there was some cognitive dissonance there. You don't react that crazily to someone not even, you know, like I was just subtweeting the group of them, really. So anyway, so I, I think, you know, like I've had a bit of an interesting track record of calling people out, you know, between Sam. You know, I think I think I called out Sam right before the FTX blow up where I was like, look, Sam is a very smart guy, which is exactly why you should not listen to anything that he says. Because whatever he's saying is psyops, right? He's psyopsing you. Like, he's just like, you know, I've, I've talked to him enough times that I'm like, I, I'm like, 
wait, what the fuck? Like, do I even, what do I believe after you talk to this guy? Like he can just like mentally, like, you know, shift reality around you. So, you know, the people that are out there doing that, I think they need to be called out. It's really hard. It's something that we just need to keep trying to do. Totally. I think a lot of people had similar um, thoughts around Sam, but no one really felt comfortable enough to call it out. And I think that if the behavior is incentivized, it's going to happen. And so, you know, this isn't the last of these kind of characters in crypto. Every bull market will have them. Looking for a stress-free crypto life in 2023? Go self-custodial with OneInch. The OneInch wallet aims to be the single app you need to manage crypto. Your OneInch wallet will act as a safe box due to hardware wallet connection, become your ultimate coin storage when adding custom tokens, and offer full versatility thanks to multi-chain support. It's easy to use, secure, and self-custodial. Go ahead and try OneInch now. So I guess what advice would you have to someone who maybe sees similar signs, but is afraid to call it out directly or publicly? Yeah. And like, just to be clear, right? Like that tweet, like I was not saying like Sam's a fraud. I was just saying like, don't you like, you can't trust what he says because he's playing a game on a level. He's playing 40 chess and you're sitting there playing like normal chess, right? Like it wasn't like, oh, and also by the way, he stole all your money. Like I had no idea. Like when I found out about that, like someone was like, uh, do you read the New York Times? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, this is insane. Right. Um, and so, um, yeah, I was, I, I was off Twitter at the time and I was finding out through like mainstream media that like this thing was going on. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not in any way saying that I had a sense. I, if you, you know, I would have bet you a million dollars that FTX was not a fraud, right? Like I just did not have that sense. Um, and I think this is one of the challenges, you know, someone who does have some suspicions or, or thinks that, you know, something's not right. Um, you can call it out, but you know, um, one of the best examples that I that I ever had was one that I was personally involved in of how hard it is to get to the truth on a, a platform like Twitter. You know, um, God bless Elon. You know, he thinks that he can get to the truth on Twitter, but like, I don't think it's I don't think it's a thing. But anyway, like you know, you I turned up um, to Mainnet right in New York, got on stage, got off stage, and. I was being told that I'd been subpoenaed as I was walking on stage. And I was like, mm, no, I'm pretty sure that's not like, I don't think like, maybe I've like, you know, forgot about that, but I don't think that happened. Right. Um, and the reality was that it was, Doe. you know, Doe had been subpoenaed as he was walking on stage. But in spite of the fact that there were 50 people standing around who saw this happen, we were all there, we were all in the room. And I was like, this didn't, it wasn't me for months and months and months afterwards. People were like, you got subpoenaed, didn't you? And I'm like, I, I really didn't. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, it was that guy. Like, you know, and so it's really, really hard. Even like the person who was standing there next to Doe when he got subpoenaed could have gotten on Twitter and been like, I literally just saw it happen. People were like, yeah, sure you did. Like, it's really, really hard in a space that is as adversarial as crypto and as crazy as crypto where there's so much stuff going on for someone to, you know, call someone out, like absent, like, you know, direct evidence. And even in, you know, someone could have tweeted a photo of him getting the subpoena and people would not have believed it, right? Like we're in a reality where it's just really hard to prove things. And so I, all I would say is, I guess, you know, holding people accountable, calling them out is really helpful, but don't expect that it's going to work and it's going to you know be successful in the longer term. Eventually people will blow themselves up. You know, some like someone who's just doing messed up stuff is going to blow themselves up. There's no avoiding that. Um, and so, you know, eventually you might get 
some you know recognition that you were calling it IRL, but like it's you know I'd much rather just not have it happen at all. Absolutely, I think that's helpful. And I was actually on that panel with Doe and. He, the, it's crazy how calm he was during that thing. I would be like trembling. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit into synthetics. And maybe for those that are listening that aren't super familiar, could you give them a TLDR? And then also just explain why you, you're so passionate about synthetics. Yeah. So synthetics is this ongoing weird experiment um, to see whether or not you can do really weird hard stuff on chain. Is, is basically what it is, right? You know, it started off as a stable coin. It evolved into, um, you know, uh, tokenized assets and exchanging of tokenized assets. It then evolved further into, you know, a pseudo lending platform, a perps platform, um, you know, basically DeFi infrastructure that supports other um, you know, things like options, et cetera. Um, so it's this evolving experiment in, in, you know, kind of financial engineering on chain, I guess, is what synthetics really is. Like that's, that's the reality, right? It isn't any one thing. Um, and I think, you know, why am I, why am I passionate about it? Um, you know, even after taking, you know, circa four months off, right. And coming back, you know, in the last, Three weeks I've been having conversations with people that have been you know, really working on stuff. And I just find myself absorbed by the difficulty of the problem, you know, by just the challenge and the complexity of the problem alone. Like, you know, I think that people who are interested in hard problems are just drawn to synthetics because, you know, it's just still kind of an unsolved problem. Like we don't know all the answers. We don't know what the optimal way of doing a lot of the stuff that, that we want to be able to do, you know, on chain is. Um, and synthetics is really open about that and just kind of lays it all out there and says like, Hey, we're doing all this weird stuff. And like some of it's working, some of it's not. And then we're iterating here. And, and you know, so it, it is, um, a place, this kind of like skunk works of just experimentation that, um, you know, is, is really amazing to watch. So that's, that's my reason for still you know, being excited by synthetics. You never know what's going to come out of it. Amazing. Yeah. And during this entire time, you know, the synthetics ecosystem has really been chugging along and the community has released a bunch of new products. Can you talk a little bit about maybe the ones you're more excited about? Yeah. So, um, you know, when we pivoted from Haven, the stablecoin to, uh, to, you know, synthetics, which was again, like tokenized, assets so like tokenized bitcoin tokenized ETH, so like erc20 versions of all these things that track the price of of the you know the external asset um in the same period that that was going on um you know i had this idea of we should be able to do like a bitmex style perpetual market right you know how hard could it be um you know and i was like hey like you know we'll just smash this out in like three months or so and, and launch it um and it then just dragged out and dragged out and dragged out and kept getting deprioritized. And, you know, for good reasons, bad reasons, you know, organizational reasons, decentralization reasons, there were all kinds of reasons, right. Of like why this happened, you know, why, why it didn't get the, um, the attention and focus that I think that it was supposed to get. And then eventually it got released. Um, and, you know, years later, right. Um, and it just was kind of not optimal. Um, the way that we built it was really not optimal. Um, and, but the nice thing about, you know, iterative experimentation is you release something, you're like, Oh, right. That was really dumb. Okay. Now I get it. Right. Um, and you know, even as we were designing this thing, like there were a lot of internal debates around like, 
how to do it within the community, right? You know, people thought this was a good idea, that was a good idea, et cetera. Um, we've now iterated and iterated and got to a point with Perps V2, the latest version that's been released, where we have actually released a bunch of markets. You know, we've got more markets and Perps than, you know, we've really had even in like the on-chain tokenized assets um, for a long period of time. So we're, we're slowly kind of iterating towards this thing and it's starting to work. Um, and I think that for this cycle to be successful, we need multiple implementations of, of perps. People want to trade perps for good or ill. That's what they want to do. Um, they want leverage. They want to, you know, they want to be able to trade on margin. Um, and so being able to, to kind of meet that need um, within the Ethereum uh, ecosystem is critical. Absolutely. And it does feel like the, the perp space in DeFi is one of the faster growing spaces. And can you talk a little bit about how your product is different than other players like GMX or, or DYDX? Yeah, I, you know, again, I think like the nuances of, you know, what's the difference between BitMEX and OKEx and you know, whatever. For the average person, they don't really care, right? Um, it's not, you know, it's a bit academic. Um, you know, when you talk about centralized exchanges, you know, creating perps, right? Like I get BitMEX invented them, but then people have made little tweaks and, you know, whatever. Um, you know, obviously there's sometimes fairly critical ones like, you know, the FTX perps, they steal all your money. Um, that's a good, you know, feature to be aware of, right? Um, and so, um, you know, we, we obviously want to talk about like, what are the differences and, and, you know, the nuances, but ultimately for a user, they really don't care. What they care about is liquidity. They care about, you know, the trading experience. They care about like, you know, what, what, you know, is the onboarding process for me? You know, that's what a user cares about. Um, and those are the things that I think, um, it's important that we have different options and we try different things. So, you know, within DYDX, it's kind of a siloed thing, right? Um, you know, it, it exists in its own, you know, kind of almost app chain silo, right? Which is cool. Um, and it gives them, you know, a number of advantages in terms of like onboarding and, you know, what they can do with like usability and, and some other stuff. Um, but it obviously doesn't allow for composability, right? That That's something that it kind of prevents. Um, and it, it's the jury's still out on how important composability is with perps. Um, you know, do you want to be able to use your perp position to, you know, collateralize an options thing or, you know, what, what does that sort of thing look like? Um, but the nuances, I think, in terms of perps that are running on L2s versus perps that are running on, you know, like something like Starkware, um, you know, uh, like roll up L2s versus, um, you know, uh, ZK L2s, um, are technically interesting, but like to a user, they don't care that much. Like really like, you know, DYDX is, is probably the best competitor, I would say to like a centralized exchange right now. Um, and part of that is because they've made some, uh, some compromises in terms of, you know, decentralization in terms of how they achieve that, but that's okay. Right. They're not going to steal all your money. So that's good, right? Um, and so you can, you know, at least you can tick that box of like my money is safe, right? Um, and so I, I do think that, um, that like ultimately, um, it's about having competition and about having, you know, different options for users. Um, and as you said, like we're starting to see that now. There's probably 10 different perps, um, you know, solutions that are out there that, that I think, you know, are going to be ready ready in the next like six or 12 months for mainstream. Exciting. Amazing. Well, I would love to shift gears to you personally. I know you've had an on and off relationship with Synthetics Governance. Can you walk us through that history and, and where you stand now? 
Yeah. So, you know, it turns out when you give up power, um, you lose the power to reclaim power, right? Like, you know, short of, short of an armed coup, um, you know, it's really hard for me to have the level of control, um, that I had of synthetic senior back in DeFi summer, even, you know, and even in 2019, like we were fairly decentralized. I, I was, um, you know, I was not able to, to do some of the things that I was able to do in 2018, you know, so this has been an ongoing, you know, seeding of power to the community. Um, I did find it a little, um, awkward, um, when due to, you know, technical challenges, right. And like, there's been a lot of things where I take responsibility that like there was a technical challenge and, and, you know, a kind of expedient decision was made and some users kind of got rugged, right. Where they're like, well, I was kind of hoping to be able to do that and whatever. In this case, I was the user that got rugged. I was unable to vote for like a year, right? In synthetics governance. Like I literally didn't even have voting power, right? Um, and that was awkward. Um, but I was still, you know, I still had enough, I guess, uh, like kind of, you know, cash in the community to get voted onto the council. Um, and then I made a decision that I wasn't going to run for the council and, and would sort of see what would happen. And it was really interesting because I stopped running for the council. Um, I, I, you know, I resigned from the council and then I watched the DMs flood in from all of the factions being like, they're doing a bad thing to me. And then this person would come in and be like, this guy is a monster. And like, it was hilarious to, to watch these things in real time. Right. Where I was like, I don't think like people, you know, people are so reactive and they get so like passionate about it. And I'm like, I don't think either of the people on either side of this debate are monsters. Right. I think that there's like a nuanced, you know, <laughs> disagreement about like, you know, like some specific aspect of the protocol. Um, but what has been really interesting in creating that power vacuum has been to sort of see how organically that power back vacuum has been filled. Right. Um, and I tried to do it too early in the past and I came back and I was like, okay, this is not working. I need to come back. There's chaos and this, like someone needs to build a thing, right? You want the, the people who are building the thing to be directed by the community and you want the community to have control over what they're building. And you want it to be, you know, this, this kind of, uh, you know, two way flow of communication. Um, and that wasn't functioning. And so I was like, all right, like we made some mistakes, you know, iterative experimentation, right? We did an experiment and it blew up and it was really bad. And we're like, okay, you know, let's go back to the drawing board on that one. And we did. And, and we got to a point where as a community, we were like, okay, this is working. And so as it stands now, my relationship to synthetics um, is, you know, a large token holder um, who's kind of watching all of this stuff kind of happen from the sidelines um, without really, you know, much direction. I'm having some conversations and there's some dialogue with some of the people that are that are building things, but I haven't even re-engaged with Discord because I just, you know, I'm I know how uh, how you know much of a black hole that can be in in terms of you know just pulling you in. And I, at the moment, I'm just trying to um, to kind of you know get the the lay of the land. But synthetics functions perfectly without me. Which, you know, there's a, there's a sadness there, right? Like, you know, a tear rolls down the cheek, right? Like, it doesn't need me anymore. Um, it, and not even in, like, a governance theater. Like, I'm actually, you know, in the back room, like, you know, Wizard of Oz style, like, pulling all the fucking cables and stuff. Like, you know, it really doesn't need me. It hasn't handled for, you know, four plus months. And it's done as well, if not better, than it would have if I was, you know, in there creating chaos. So I think in that respect, um, you know, the, the experiment of decentralized governance has succeeded. Um, that said, you know, there are advantages to, 
um, having someone who's fairly high profile who can communicate the narratives for a project that, you know, and so I think that that ongoing will probably be my role to, you know, help to synthesize what's going on. You know, there's a lot of different threads going on in synthetics and, and try and pull that together and, and communicate it. MetaMask Learn is an educational platform designed to immerse you in the world of Web3, what it is, why it matters, and how to get started. You will learn core concepts in fresh and engaging lessons from the world's leading self-custodial wallet. MetaMask Learn is for you if you've been interested in Web3 but just don't know where to start, you've bought some crypto on an exchange but don't know what to do with it, you still don't understand Web3 principles because they've been too jargon heavy, and you want to know what the fuss about Web3 really is. Yeah, and it makes me think back to that tweet from Three Arrows Capital where they were kind of criticizing you for leaving the ecosystem and it goes back to them really not understanding the ethos of decentralization because that really is the goal and i think yaniv tall famously said you know you treat power like a hot potato and you really want to give it away but i think this conversation would probably have most executives from traditional finance or board of directors fainting and wondering you know how how you get there and why that's important so maybe can you double click on that ethos for maybe someone from the traditional space who's listening to this conversation yeah, uh, you know, when all you have are like top-down hierarchies, right? Uh, you know, power hierarchies. Then you know everything starts to you know look like something that uh, that needs you know top-down power, right? Like that's when that's the only tool you have. You shape things around you to be governed by those things, right? Um, and that is essentially corporate governance with some weird you know offshoots of you know, things where it's not even like a top-down hierarchy. It's just like a dictatorship, right? You know, with one guy with, you know, super voting rights for, you know, in a hundred years and his zombie, you know, what, like family gets to run it forever. Like what, you know, like, like this, this weird things, but it's like, you know, essentially these are just top-down hierarchical organizations, right? Where power flows from the top and that's it. Um, and, you know, holacracy and some other weird stuff that people have tried this and things like that. But we have not had the tools to coordinate humans around the world on the internet and not have it devolve into chaos. We just didn't have those tools. We kind of don't have them still, but we're pretending like we do and we're slowly building them in real time and being like, look over here, like this is a thing, right? And, you know, so like we need to work out how we govern ourselves um, in ways that are not down, like top-down hierarchies, right? Um, you know, we just, we have to, that's, that's so critical. Um, and these experiments are, are important. And so, you know, when I look at synthetics and I've said this for a long time and it's becoming more and more true every day, synthetics as a governance experiment versus synthetics, even if synthetics ends up being the dominant purpose protocol in D5, let's say, right. And what would that look like? Let's say it's got, you know, let's say you take centralized exchanges and, you know, the dominant one has 25% or, or whatever, you know, uh, for a while there was some, you know, anomalies there. <laughs> I think we've talked enough about FTX, but, you know, they're like the, the market, um, you know, the market uh, is going to be split amongst like three or four winners and, you know, 20, 25% of the purpose volume is going to go to one DeFi protocol. And, you know, the people who own that token are going to do really well. And it's going to be super exciting and, you know, whatever. Right. Um, in terms of the impact on, humanity that that has it's just not that high like you know i love bitmex and it's really cool but like it's not changing humanity you know um and and 
I think that this is the opportunity that all of the OG DeFi protocols have. And I think most of them have taken it and, and the experiments are playing out. We are experimenting on how we coordinate humans globally online, you know, in a, in a way that is, um, you know, kind of uh, enforceable without recourse to, you know, like a specific jurisdiction and laws and courts and, and what have you, right? Like we're working out a way to get people to coordinate and, and all work on a thing and have something that's like, you know, kind of self-contained and, and um, internally consistent. And if synthetics, the experiments that we've run, if any of those components of those experiments end up being incorporated in like future online governance, that's infinitely more valuable than being like the cool perps protocol for, you know, that decade. Like it's just not even close. So to me, that's, that's really why it was so important to me. Even if in doing the experiment, synthetics had failed, the information that was gathered from that experiment, I think is more valuable than if it had succeeded. Totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of the reason why I'm so passionate about this space is because the way we coordinate online and incentivize that coordination can really make huge waves in the world. And if you think about it, all the problems that exist in the world, it's not because we don't have enough of this, the whatever thing it's because we can't coordinate to get people what they need. And I think with this technology, if we do these experiments right over time, we'll actually be able to coordinate, you know, food, water, shelter, whatever is needed. Um, and, and I guess that's why I'm, I'm so passionate about so many of these experiments and you, you kind of touched on that. What would you say is one of the harder things about being a founder in crypto, maybe tailored to someone who wants to follow a similar path? You know, I can only speak to myself. Um, and I think one of the things that I've kind of realized over the last six months, um, you know, having gone to some level of success as a founder, um, you know, I always thought that this idea of workaholism was like kind of a funny joke, right? Um, I was like, yeah, but like you need to do it in order to be successful. And like, there's not really any such thing as like a workaholic, right? Like this is just like, a thing that you have to do and like you just kind of you know keep grinding right like we used to have this joke in synthetics about like the death march like we were on a death march and it's not a joke like we like we were like you know you were just grinding every single day and you would just show up and like do the thing and like you know we're in the office for like you know 80 90 100 hours a week it was it was insane um you know you're under resourced you're stressed you're tired you know um and i think that like there's a tendency to kind of, you know, lionize the people that are willing to do that. Um, and maybe on some level, like that is necessary, right? Like there's some level of like commitment for, you know, a short period of time. Um, but I think as a founder and, and again, you know, speaking of my own personal experience, I didn't realize until I took a step back how unhealthy that obsession was, um, you know, and look, I've, I've looked at a lot of aspects of my life, right. Um, you know, um, I make no, um, kind of, I, I don't hide the fact that like, you know, I used to be someone who liked to do drugs and, and, you know, do chaotic things and like run around, you know, being crazy. Right. Um, all of that in my mind, um, I think kind of comes from a similar place, right. Of like trying to avoid your own, brain you know there's like this like let me find the hardest problem that i can get absorbed in and just work on that for 90 hours and then like collapse into bed and then get up the next day and do that right like all of that stuff is about like how do i avoid dealing with my own mind you know how do i how do i you know not look inwards how do i just keep looking outwards and so 
I think that, you know, for me, um, as a founder, uh, crypto is, and I've seen this happen. I've seen attract, you know, traditional startups, SaaS startups or whatever, like have aspects of this, but you touched on it. Crypto is 24 seven. There's never been a better drug for a workaholic than crypto. Like it is the best thing that humans have designed for like work. If workaholism is your drug, right? And I say that in like a real, like this is a real fucking thing. Like this is not a joke, right? Like I used to joke about it and be like, ha ha ha, back to, you know, like chaining myself to the desk for 18 hours, right? Like, you know, like people are crazy. Like this is not a real thing. Being obsessed with work is dangerous. It's as dangerous as being obsessed with anything else. Um, and crypto has the tendency to suck people in because it it can feed an obsession you know if running a SaaS startup or like being involved in like an early stage you know uh startup um you know online retail startup or whatever is you know uh i don't know um like marijuana right on the scale of drugs like crypto's crystal meth like you're not fucking around. Like you're like like this. You're up for 18 days straight, and like you know you're scrolling things on the ceiling. Like you've lost your mind, right? And so I think the one thing that I would say is just be mindful um, of how crypto taps into whatever obsessive aspects there might be in in yourself, right? Um, and you know it's so easy to ignore. I ignored it for years and years, and it's like haha balance whatever you weak people, like what's wrong with you, you know, like go and like, you know, run into a brick wall a hundred times and like, see what happens, you know, um, like literally like I, it was, it was something that I just could not see. I was, I was so resistant to it. Um, and so, you know, like, as I've like realized having done all the things that I wanted to do on some level and like been successful and got all this stuff and still unable to kind of sit with myself and, and face my own brain that the obsession that I had with, with crypto, um, you know, and there's, there's healthy aspects like crypto is amazing. All the things we talked about, the, the power to transform, like all of that stuff is amazing, but you can take something too far. Um, and so, you know, genuinely like that's the thing that I've, I've really been trying to reflect on over the last like few months is like how to find a balanced way of getting the good parts without the obsessive parts and, and not, um, you know, not kind of having my, my, um, uh, my inability to to kind of sit with myself, you know, be transformed into this like perverse, you know, seeking out of, of uh, you know, um, any kind of obsession I could find. Yeah, I can relate to that as, as someone who also has been a workaholic, you know, since I was about 16. And I feel like for me, I was kind of in this survival mode and just ignoring everything else. But lately, you know, it's no longer survival mode. It's, you know, this wanting to make a positive impact, wanting to leave the world a better place. And so I guess for you, when you had that transition, any advice for, for others who are maybe going through a similar transition where you had to take a step back, you looked inward uh, and just kind of, yeah, and now you're coming back to the field and, and running back in, but maybe in a more balanced way. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to do it in a more measured way. Um, and I think the thing that I would say is that, you know, if you, and, and like, I'm, you know, I'm in a recovery from drugs and alcohol, right? Like I, like I genuinely like was not like anything in my life that I could use to kind of like, you know, avoid dealing with, you know, my own, my own, uh, sort of brain I would use. Right. You know, so work was the main thing for years and years for like decades. Right. But then I, uh, you know, if there was like a, 
break in the work or like, you know, they shut down the office. I was like, oh, fuck, what do I do? Like, I got to go and, you know, fill my head with chemicals, right? To like stop, you know, from, from dealing with this. So I, what I would say is that like, if you do try to, um, find a balance or, or, you know, you do try to like interrogate what, look at your intentions, look at your motivations. What is your motivation? And for me, my motivations were mixed. My motivations were all of the things that are exciting about crypto and all of the things that, but perverted into something that was my, you know, my motivation became to avoid kind of, you know, dealing with myself and, and, you know, thinking about like how, how I felt or, you know, um, thinking about, you know, what I cared about or, or, you know, what was important to me, all of that stuff just fell by the wayside. And it was just like, find this thing to be obsessed with and, and focus on. And so I think that is a really hard thing to do. Um, but examining your own motivations, um, is, is probably the one, um, thing that I would say. And, and when you really do examine your motivations, um, in a kind of deep and honest way, um, you know, and are open to seeing where your motivations might be, you know, skewed towards something that is a bit more obsessive or, or not as healthy, um, that that's, that's the first step. And then from there, you can be like, okay, you know, what's my motivation for, you know, doing a bunch of drugs? Like, you know, I was like, oh, just having fun and like doing drugs, drugs are fun, you know? Um, but it turns out that when you really like deeply inspect those motivations and you find out actually maybe those motivations were slightly different to what I thought they were, um, that's the first step in kind of unlocking like some you know, personal growth and, and understanding of yourself. So that's, that's what I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. And I almost feel like collectively in the crypto space, we are kind of shifting to this mental health focus. So it's great. You were able to, to take time and, and reflect and, and I'm proud of you for, for the journey so far. Um, I'm sure Cami asked this question, but I'm going to ask it again now that you've done your reflection. Uh, how are you defiant? So, you know, I've always been defiant and, and, you know, as I said, like, you know, sitting, we, I think she asked me this question, like, you know, when I was sitting that, like, you know, concrete stairwell or something like that in 2019, um, I am defiant in that I believe that what we're doing is the optimal way to coordinate people. I, I, you know, I believe that this is, if, if not the optimal way, it is a more optimal way, right? It is a way that's in the direction of optimally coordinating people and, Historical ways to coordinate people have been infected because we didn't have the technology to do it. And now we do. We've invented these, you know, ways to kind of finally coordinate people, um, online, you know, in the form of blockchains, right? And, you know, that's what, that's Satoshi's thing, right? It wasn't a, a payment network. It was, it was this, you know, um, it was, it was this ability to like create consensus online. Um, and in order to see that through, you're going to have a bunch of dumb idiots who are not going to like it and who are going to try and stop you and are going to tell you that you know you are wrong and bad and you know trading like unregistered securities or whatever things they're going to come up with right whatever their theory is of like you know your rat poison squared or whatever but if you truly have the conviction that this is the thing that is going to really allow you know for another wave of innovation and and you know kind of progress in humanity then you just need to ignore that stuff and be defiant and just keep pushing and keep doing it and you know what if you're wrong no big deal right if we're wrong and none of this is you know made any sense okay like no big deal. But if we're right, the impact is exponentially more powerful than, you know, if you went and just worked at Goldman Sachs. Absolutely. I love it. Thank you so much, Kane. This was such a great conversation. Really appreciate you coming on. 
Awesome. Yeah, it was great to be here. Thank you.